the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 103. This is the Instagram Live from July 1st, 2020. Uh, I picked out all the best parts and jammed them into this like 35, 40 minute podcast so you guys can uh, listen at your own pace come back to different information and uh, ultimately just you know wanted to give you guys another pass through this information if you happen to join us live if you didn't join us live that's okay we got it archived here it's also on my instagram tv Uh, if you go to my instagram profile jordan underscore barbell medicine and uh, click on the little tv icon you can watch me as i answer these questions if you want to join us live it's every Wednesday, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, yeah, we do this. You can ask questions live and I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. Also, little plug here for the Barbell Medicine Research Review. If you want to check that out, we're selling individual issues now. Um, so first off, you can download the January 2019 and the January 2020 issues for free uh, to try it on for size. The topics from the 2020 uh, issue in January include normal movements of the low back during squats and deadlifts, where I cover everything pertaining to rounding of the lower back, back injury, uh, you know, during a squat and deadlift. So if you're ever curious about that, you can check that out article out for free. Um, Dr. Baraki covers movement variability. Should we eliminate it or embrace it? Dr. Michael Ray covers pain and movement caught in an endless loop of misinformation. And then Dr. Derek Miles covers who contributes to the development of perfectionism ideal in youth athletes. Look, all of the issues are jam-packed with information and you can get each individual issue by themselves. If you don't want to subscribe to the research review, just go over to the website, click on the research review and check out the titles on the individual issues. And, uh, you know, if something piques your interest, check it out. Uh, Again, January 2020 and January 2019, both available for free over on our website as well if you want to check that out. And uh, hey, without any further ado, let's get into this week's podcast. Okay, let's get to some of your questions and, uh, you know. We'll, we'll do it when we run out of questions, we, we run out of time, and then just get out of here. So thanks for spending the next little bit of your life with me. We're doing this every Wednesday night, 5.30 p.m. Pacific Standard. So if you can't stay the whole time this time, maybe next time. Also, I post all these to the Instagram TV on my channel, on my page. If you go to my profile and you click on Instagram TV, you should be able to see all the old ones. All right. How do you calculate... RPE stuff, if your previous maxes were at substantially heavier body weight, redo the maxes? No, in fact, that's actually the benefit of using RPE. So RPE stands for rate of perceived exertion. And there's a couple different ways you can use it. So you can use it uh, as a proxy for reps in reserve, repetitions in reserve. So in that example, RP8, you'd have two reps left in reserve. RP9, you'd have one rep left in reserve. RP10 would be a maximum effort. You'd have zero reps left in reserve. You can also use it um, as a scale to to gauge uh, exertion levels um, that uh, are not tied to any sort of reps in reserve. So for example, if you're doing a single at RP8, that might feel like a uh, fast second attempt at a powerlifting meet or an easy opener, for example, if you've done a powerlifting meet before, or you can use that as repetitions in reserve. You can use it for a lot of different things. You can use it for conditioning, you can use it for Olympic lifts, uh, you know, and this thing has been applied across a bunch of different uh, exercise modes. In any case, if you don't know your maxes and therefore can't use the calculator that we bake into all of our templates uh, to sort of bracket your expectations for what weight you should be hitting um, at a given RPE and a given rep uh, scheme, 
then just use the actual, uh, you know, the rep scheme that's prescribed and RPE to guide you. What that means is that if you had something like a hey, work up to a set of four repetitions at RPE nine, you do sets of four all the way up, adding a little bit of weight, adding a little bit of weight, adding a little bit of weight until you got to like RPE seven, meaning you had three reps left in the tank. You didn't even calculate anything. Uh, previously, you'd have some sort of mental bracket based on what you've done before, um, but you wouldn't have any firm sort of, you know, I got to hit this. And that's actually how I would prefer that people use RPE rather than say, oh, the calculator, you know, predicted I would do this much weight. And it's like, well, yeah, but what if you are overperforming today? The calculator then leaves you understimulated for that training session. On the other hand, if you're not feeling so hot, uh, for whatever reason, then the calculator, what it spits out, leaves you, you know, maybe overstimulated uh, for the day. If you can even actually hit those weights, you might miss something. So um, I would just use how the the each lift actually feels, how each set actually feels to sort of drive what weight you should have on the bar. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. Proudest moment as a coach. Well, it says couch. So proudest moment as a couch and businessman. <laughs> Uh, I've not had any proud moments as a couch, but as a coach, uh, proudest moment, I, you know, when Leah pulled the uh, 175 at nationals, that was pretty cool, especially in the context of how the meet was actually going at the time. That was a, a pretty cool pull, uh, for her. So I was pretty, pretty psyched, um, on that. It was really cool, but I'm already planning on her hitting like 185. So <laughs> in my brain, it was 180, but it might've been 175. In any case, uh, proudest moment as a businessman, Man, I don't know, when I did my taxes last year. <laughs> All right. Thoughts on the 20-rep squat programs? Yeah, I don't think they're that great for developing maximal strength, um, which we would usually define that as like low velocity force production at you know 1RM, 2RM, 3RM, even up to 5RM um, sort of uh, sets. So not great for those. Not really great for muscular hypertrophy. There are better ways to grow your legs than doing 20 rep squats. Uh, it's just the stimulus to fatigue. It just really isn't worth it. If you want to do it, that's fine. Doing a heavy set of 20, I mean, that, you know, it's hard. But there are a lot of things that are difficult that don't actually improve outcomes. So lighting yourself on fire and then dealing with the aftermath there, that's difficult. That's hard. But it doesn't make you any stronger or more jacked. So, yeah, I don't know. Wouldn't be my, my choice. Any tips for a powerlifter trying to learn golf? Yeah, I don't think there's anything special that I would do for a powerlifter who's trying to learn golf. I don't know, you know, there's nothing like powerlifting specific that precludes you from being, uh, you know, developing skills at golf. I think the you're going to get a lot of not so great information um, talking about stretching. I don't think you need to do that. Talking about you know, watch out for like when you lift and and play golf on the same days. I don't think that's you know, something that you really need to take into consideration. Um, you just need to play some golf and practice and maybe find a good coach if, if you if you have uh, some spots in your game that you need to, you know, work on. But let's see, why does this particular program only have a 2% compliance rate? Uh, yeah, it just like people don't adhere to the program. I don't know why that is. That's not been studied. But uh, that is the case from this particular program. Only... 2% of the people who were so, with a high selection bias, these people had start, had logs on that forum, had, you know, obviously bought into the Kool-Aid 
and, you know, gone through the trouble of like actually reporting their workouts and less than 2% of them were actually adherent to the program with some allotted sort of slop, meaning they could do extra sets on like pull-ups or do some other sort of exercises like curls or whatever. Um, it just, you know, when people are like, oh, it's so simple, that improves adherence. And it's like, no, the simplicity of the actual exercise program doesn't really play a role in adherence. The biggest uh, sort of factor for adherence is going to be enjoyment. And then the next is sort of the person feeling like they can complete the program, like they played a role in creating the program, that they are sort of um, masters of their own domain, that they're responsible uh, and, and, and capable of, of, uh, of sort of doing it of executing it, this sort of self-efficacy uh, thing. Um, those are the biggest sort of factors in adherence. And the, you know, sets, sets and reps and simplicity, you know, however you sort of define that, doesn't appear to play a big role here. Knee sleeves, when did you get them and uh, why do you get them and do you recommend? I got my first pair of knee sleeves sometime before my first powerlifting meet. I think that was 2010, 2011. Tommy Kono sleeves, which were illegal at the time in the USAPL, but they were also way cheaper. So at the time, you could either get Tommy Kono knee sleeves, which were like rubber, literally, or you could get the Ray-Ban knee sleeves from, uh, I believe you had to get them from Jackal's Gym. Um, those are the only places that were selling the blue ones, um, and they were way more expensive. So I just got the Tommy Konos. Uh, why did I get them? I, all the other powerlifters had them. Um, and I did like that they kept my knees a little warmer. Uh, that, that being said, the existing data on there right now suggests that for individuals with osteoarthritis related knee pain, that they have decreased pain scores, uh, with activity by wearing the neoprene knee sleeve, also a little bit of increase in joint temperature, which some people may appreciate. And then also a little bit of kinesthetic, kinesthetic awareness as far as where the knee joint is in, uh, as far as its range of motion, that those things are actually increased via, uh, the knee sleeve. But as far as like does it add weight to the bar? I think that's mostly between the ears. What do you think about doing technique reviews on Instagram Live? Nope, not going to do it. Yeah, I just so what we're doing with Barbell Medicine is we're actually opening like a portal where people can submit videos for form reviews, and it's going to have some nominal fee so we don't get spammed. It'd be like five bucks or something like that. Um, but yeah, one of our coaches then will review your technique. We'll have like a formal assessment, and I think that's a better idea than Instagram Live. How did you improve your time management during medical school to be able to do all of your school assignments, study, and also keep training hard? Oh, you forgot to, the, the, to add that I started a six-figure-per-year business. Uh, and I don't say that, you know, as like a humble brag. It's just like the time management skills that I already had from my master's program, that's where I really developed this stuff, just, you know, made meds, medical school pretty you know, straightforward for me. I thought I had more time in medical school than I did in during my master's program. During my master's program, I was still training people in person full time. So that took up a lot of time where I needed to be there. Uh, in addition to studying, going to my classes uh, and tutoring others. So in med school, I thought it was, you know, relatively straightforward. I really feel like the biggest thing is figuring out how to study. Once you figure out how to study, then you realize how much time you actually do have. But yeah, I was training, you know, 15 hours a week, uh, going to, you know, you know, doing medical school, running a business. Life was good. Yeah. How has the transition from starting strength to barbell medicine been personally, professionally, and financially? Yeah, so this happened like a while ago, like two and a half years ago. So it, it really wasn't a transition. It just kind of happened. Um, personally, 
eh, you know, I think I had some really good friends in that community that ultimately abandoned me completely and the rest of the people with barbell medicine, which is super unfortunate because it's like, <laughs> you guys are hitching your car, your, your, your horse to this wagon. That seems like a bad idea, but okay. Uh, professionally, great. Best things ever happened to us. Uh, uh, you know, our material has been able to flourish uh, on its own and, um, you know, get more widely read and uh, more accessible. And we've been able to grow uh, a lot more too by working with other people who wouldn't have worked with us had we stayed affiliated and financially way better. Yeah, we're just, it's not even close. Barbell Brigade recently came out with their version of an immunity booster supplement and stated that vitamin C and B complex vitamins need to be taken every day. Yep, that's 100% bullshit. But if you're, you know, trusting a gym organization, like a gym, to tell you, give you medical information, um, particularly when nobody has training <laughs> in medicine, and, uh, you know, that's, that's bad news right there. But yeah, you don't need to take any vitamins. Vitamin C, not associated with improved uh, uh, clinical outcomes um, in the gen in general population. Same thing with B-complex vitamins. You don't need to take any of those unless you're on a super restricted diet, um, in which case your doctor would have prescribed them to you. I'm talking about not like, oh, I only eat these kind of vegetables and fruits per day. Not that anybody sounds like that. That's just my, my voice. But we're talking about like, People who've had uh, gastric bypass or other sort of uh, surgeries like that, people with diseases of the uh, bowel who have, are at risk for malabsorption, things like that. What is your all-time favorite variation for the big three? Uh, for the squat, probably a pause squat. I like that a lot. For bench press, probably close grip bench. Yeah, or slingshot, probably one of those. And deadlift, uh, probably deficit deadlift, yep. Uh, B. Alexander lifts, unless it's... Balexander. Maybe it's Balexander. Balexander. That's a good name. All right. Do you think a person can return to lifting after an umbilical and inguinal hernia repair? So we just did a podcast on this, and the current recommendations by the International Hernia Surgery Guidelines is that there's no specific uh, restriction postoperatively. You just go back to training. That being said, you should ask your doctor because perhaps you have a complication that needs to be managed a little bit differently. What's the ideal RPE and volume for high-frequency training? There is no singular RPE and volume for high-frequency training, any sort of training. It's, it all depends on the individual. So I couldn't even begin to answer that question outside of a, outside of a specific context. Do you think you will release a template displaying how you might program for team sports? Yes, it is in the works currently. It's basically coming out with this PD, uh, this training youth ebook that Dr. Derek Miles and I have been working on and kind of comes with some team sport sort of um, templates. If we're talking about like adult sports, I don't know. But we're talking about through college level. So that's what we're going to be like uh, uh, working towards. All right. Are the increases in muscle mass seen in groups taking PEDs but not training due to their minimum effective volume dropping essentially to zero? No. It's due to their muscle protein synthesis rates increasing secondary to anabolic steroids. To pass time. What's up, man? Hey, Jordan, are powdered super green supplements of any use? I don't think so. In fact, even like fiber supplements. So the whole idea is like you're trying to get stuff from like fruits and vegetables, right? And, and this is a similar sort of thing we see with people taking fiber supplements, trying to get like the benefits of eating fiber without eating fibrous foods. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains. Um, we actually don't see any of those benefits 
um, unless outside of psyllium husk, that's the only fiber supplement, for example, that even starts to mimic uh, some of the fiber from fruits, vegetables, and whole grains, but then you're missing all of the flavonoids and other phytonutrients that uh, are in fruits and vegetables. So I feel the same way about super greens. That's a no for me. Derek Rose is a little Metcon after a lifting session, something you'd program or recommend, or you'd rather have conditioning done separately. I think for the, uh, the right person, that's fine. You know, most folks are in no danger of getting too fit. Um, that being said, I think if someone hasn't been doing any sort of conditioning, particularly like with barbells or with, you know, CrossFit style workouts, you're talking about Metcons here. I don't know that I would add them after every session right off the bat. Um, yeah, not worried about it. When in doubt during weight selection, should you just go with the lower weight? I think if you're in danger of overshooting it, sure. And I always think like if you hit a weight and it's way too easy, you can just add more weight to the bar versus if you overshoot and you fail, it's pretty hard to like back it down and, and, and hit a lighter weight um, and still hit the prescribed RPE. What would be your go-to early intermediate training template out of practical programming? I wouldn't recommend that book or that nomenclature or any program out of there i would recommend the bridge for somebody who's done a novice program if they're already on the novice program and they're loving it cool if they're on the novice program and they're starting to stall or they have questions about like what do i do to like keep the gains going it's just like stop don't you don't you don't need to hack up a program um just to keep it going it's the first program or one of the first programs you've ever run like nothing magical here. So those folks I would have do the beginner program, but if you're at the end and you're looking for the next step, it would do the bridge, which will bridge you into uh, more appropriate training uh, programs. Can you talk a bit about your experience with hip shift in the squat? Mine is very noticeable and can aggravate hamstrings and glutes on the side that shift to. I never had hip shift in the squat. Um, I had hip pain, but I, there was no noticeable shift. We see that sometimes people will shift their hips, usually from an asymmetrical stance or bar position, or sometimes just you know for no identifiable cause at all. Usually this resolves, you take some weight off the bar um, and make sure their stance is roughly symmetrical. I probably, and if you're already having pain, that's probably what I would do anyway. Self-efficacy seems like a universal goal in training health and life for numerous reasons, yes. Can you please discuss those reasons? Yeah, so I feel like we've done this quite a bit. Um, the whole idea, though, is that in order to get people to change their behavior, behaviors, if there's multiple targets for behavioral change, they need to feel like they are responsible for the outcome, that they are capable of changing the outcome, that they are knowledgeable and or have the resources to actually navigate to, you know, to navigate the situation and uh, uh, effectively feel empowered uh, all of those things are sort of like what the individual needs to engage in a behavioral change, whether that's to, you know, engage in a dietary intervention, to train, to stop smoking, whatever. Um, and so all of those things effectively are, you know, self-efficacy wrapped in one. Um, in medicine, this is called patient activation. There's actually a way, a patient activation uh, sort of screening tool. It's called the PAS. Uh, it's proprietary, but... If you had people with higher activation scores, they tend to do way better with behavioral change. Um, so they lose a lot more weight. They stop smoking um, at much higher rates, etc. So just when people say we need to focus on education in order to change behavior, and it's like 
I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, you know, full stop. What I mean by that is, you know, telling people that they just need to eat healthier or eat less, for example, is probably not going to change anybody's dietary pattern so that they lose weight. Rather, you need, they need to engage in behavioral change. And so how do you get them there? You have to empower them. You have to get them to be intrinsically motivated and feel like they can make the change before they'll make the change. It's not just telling them what to do. They need to be sort of on board with this, and that's all through self-efficacy. Why do you dislike 531? Uh, you can uh, read the article into the great wide open. I don't dislike the program. I just think there are better choices out there. And I think when you distill it down, like what is 531, um, the actual 531 program, regards to the programming of the main lifts at particular rep schemes and intensity ranges. Um, and I think that on balance, it's not a great structure. And sure, if you modify it till it's no longer recognizable, maybe that would work. Um, you know, particularly because there's inter individual uh, uh, responses to a given training program. So people respond differently to a given training program. But it's like, why even start there? Jordan, what are your thoughts on the Dr. McGill method? And if you disagree with his method, is there any doctor you can recommend in New York City? I have lumbar spine pain that has been going on for four years. Yeah, so uh, I don't know that Dr. McGill has a particular method. He has, you know, different exercises and sort of information on low back pain as far as risk reduction. Actually, I think he used the term prevention, but we'll just say risk reduction um, and actually, you know, dealing with pain. And I think I reject all of those things. They're based on the biomedical model, really been rebutted hard by modern science. Um, I don't have a doctor in New York that I'm, you know, ready to refer you to. However, if you've had low back pain for four years, the good news is it's probably not due to something that you would require, you know, emergent sort of management of meaning like you need surgery or you need, you know, an injection or you need uh, something like that. Uh, I would recommend one of our co a consultation with one of our rehab professionals. They can do that remotely, which is good for everyone. Um, and you can contact us through a website for that. Hi, Jordan. I've recently purchased the power building template. I attend a commercial gym that is pretty strict on dropping weights. Due to this, I cannot perform rows. What is a good substitute? Uh, so we would not recommend dropping your rows anyway. So you can just do rows. Um, if you mean that the weight's actually coming back down to the ground w with, uh, you know, some higher velocity doing Pemblay rows, I would just do bent over rows where the weights don't come back down to the ground, or you could do a chest supported row or really any row that you want. What is the effect of higher creatinine to the kidney? So creatinine in and of itself is not typically a harmful, you know, by, uh, byproduct. It's just a marker of kidney function. So elevated creatinine suggests that the kidneys are unable to clear that uh, substance from the blood. So it suggests that the kidneys are not actually working so well. But the actual creatinine itself eh, doesn't really do anything. Is there any real carryover from box jumps to the deadlift? I mean, I would... There's probably some, they're both lower extremity exercises, but I wouldn't expect there to be a high carryover, no. One's high velocity force production, which some of the adaptations run counter to what you want for low velocity force production. The joint angles aren't you know terribly similar. One doesn't have a barbell. Hi, Jordan, is it okay for my 14-year-old to do squats and deadlifts? It indeed. Yeah, and so I would refer you to, we have a training youth, like a five-part series on our website written by Dr. Derek Miles. The current uh, exercise guidelines for youth involves resistance training two to three times per week. So wearing masks while squatting and deadlifting, personal preference or necessary? 
So the current WHO guidelines uh, do not recommend wearing a mask during exercise. However, it really depends on your situation. If you're very close to other people, um, you know, wearing masks is probably not a bad idea. It probably does not matter at all during squatting and deadlifting. But, um, you know, just depends. 38 years old, familial hypercholesterolemia, blood panels are normal outside of cholesterol. CT of heart comes back. Oh, you did a CAC, coronary artery. Calcium score was zero. Dieting useless to lower it. Am I going to have to go to statins? So it just depends what your cholesterol, well, not what your cholesterol levels are, but what your lipoprotein levels are. So particularly your LDL and your triglycerides. Um, in general, in general, dieting, a little weight loss, if you are carrying excess adipose tissue um, or other dietary changes like increasing dietary fiber um, and reduction uh, of dietary cholesterol can usually lower your uh, the LD, uh, LDL and your triglycerides by you know 10 to 25 percent. That's pretty a pretty good drop. If that doesn't get you back to your target range, yeah, statins and other potential medications may be necessary. And that's not unusual people with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia, but you know there are different uh, forms of that disease, and people have different sort of responses to the therapy. All right. If I want to be strong and athletic like you, oh, I don't know that I'm particularly athletic, but all right, well, let's go with it. Uh, and I want to compete in a yearly powerlifting meet. Can I rotate between the power building, hypertrophy, endurance templates, and then strength three for the upcoming meet? I mean, you could. If it were me, I would do uh, probably just alternating between hypertrophy and strength three, and then maybe once a year run the endurance template. How much do you love your R8? Uh, that's okay. Some of the luster is worn off of it now that I've had it for so long. If I had to choose another car, yeah, I just, you know, I'm really missing. I want to shift it. I want to row my own gears, but you can't get that these days unless you get on like a waiting list for a 911, you know, GT3 or GT2 RS. And, you know, it's two or three years before you can get one of the six speeds. So, yeah. I know you're a fan of the Texas Power Bar. If price weren't a factor, would you consider, what would you consider the ultimate Power Bar? Oh, the Elyco competition powerlifting bar by far it, the kabuki is not that great i don't i would get i would use an ohio power bar over that one 10 out of 10 times the ohio power bar is is great um i just prefer the texas power bar so if you're going to spend under a thousand dollars get the texas bar the ohio power bar if you're going to spend a thousand dollars or more get the alico the alico is the best though average driving distance yeah i'm right in that 280 295 range for carry um rollout obviously depends on the conditions but Swing speeds, usually 112 to 115 range. So I can hit some bombs, you know. How's the golf handicap coming? Yeah, we're under 10. We're floating around, you know, yeah, high single digits. Um, if I get on a track that uh, is a little more open, I can I can go low at times. But, uh, yeah, did not play so well today. Thoughts on pre-workout from a medical standpoint? Yeah, I, I don't think most of the supplements on the market should be purchased, let alone taken. Um, the real thing, is, the real problem is that most of them have not been tested for purity um, and correct, and the dosing being correct. So with, from a purity standpoint, that's a real risk. Um, over half of supplements on the market right now, closer to 60%, I believe, are have contaminants. And sometimes these can contaminants are pharmaceuticals. Some of them are illicit drugs. Sometimes they're heavy metals. Yeah, you don't want any of that stuff. Um, and then from a dosing standpoint, either the 
dose that they're trying to give you is wrong. So just like somebody giving you like one gram of creatine, it's like, okay, you, that's not, you know, you don't need a burp of creatine. That's not enough. Um, or what they put on the label, five grams, for example, which would be the, you know, a correct dose for creatine is not actually in the supplement. So you need to have this verified by a third party, either informed for sport. That's what we have or NSF. Um, there are some other ones floating around there as well. And you also want a certificate of good manufacturing processes um, to make sure the thing uh, is is manufactured correctly. So my personal favorite pre-workout is the one that we make. It's called PeriRx. Um, I don't know that there are many on the market, uh, same thing with our protein, that check all those boxes as far as having the correct dose not you know, and being verified safe. Um, so yeah, that's why I would recommend our supplements. What advice would you have to give medical students that want to go into orthopedics or PM&R but want to integrate the biopsychosocial model of pain into practice? Yeah, you should be. I mean, that's what's taught in medical school anyway. Um, but, you know, you'll have to do some further education for yourself as far as how that uh, – how you communicate with patients, how you get their history, how you, um, you know, examine them and, 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 you know, give them, you know, your sort of recommendations and treat them. So, yeah, it just – it seems to stop, it, it, you know – right when you get in the clinic it's like oh, okay we learned that pain is complex and has all these inputs and you know the experience of pain is probably better explained by the biopsychosocial model but as far as actually putting that into practice yeah it just kind of stops if you had to choose between psychiatry and anatomical pathology as a career what would you pick uh probably an anatomical pathology i really do love anatomy i've taken way too many anatomy courses so any advice for pressing bench and overhead press with a slap tear in the shoulder? Injury happened 12 years ago, no surgery. Yeah, would recommend checking out the article, Pain and Training, What Do? That kind of sets you up for what we would ha uh, have you do. Fortunately, many people have slap tears or other sort of uh, um, abnormal findings on MRI, uh, but can bench and press just fine. So, uh, yeah, I would recommend reading that article and see, uh, see what you do. Uh, is it worth it investing in a reputable powerlifting coach? I think if powerlifting is super important to you, particularly your performance, then having an objective set of eyes on both your programming and your you know, technique is probably worthwhile to achieve the highest level of performance. Sure. Rowing on the Concept 2 doesn't seem hard enough to be conditioning for the 20-second on Q2 minute intervals. I have the damper set to 10. Yeah, that's a mistake. Don't set it to 10. Set it to 5 or 6 and see if you can get over like – 180, 200 meters per 20 seconds. Your stroke rate should be like in the 40s. Um, but if you set it to 10, you just can't pull fast enough. So that's a mistake. Don't do that. Do you recommend bar speed sensors in conjunction with RPE? Yeah, you can. Bar velocity is a useful metric. Sure. All right. Thanks for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Again, I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. We're here every Monday. So every Monday, you know, you could just refresh your podcast browser page, or you could subscribe and uh, make sure that you get those push notifications sent to your phone. Hey, Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're here every Monday with uh, either an interview with some of our other clinicians or another uh, uh, guest who's going to provide high quality information to you, or maybe it's just an Instagram live, you know? where I'm just doing Q&As. Either way, every Monday, catch us here, wherever you're getting your podcast from. And if you could, leave us a review, rate us. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. We thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.